In today's politically divided climate, people don't normally associate politics with ethical values. So how does this intersection connect to political discourse and modern media? There's some really terrific research done by Phil Tetlock. And at one point, he did a quantitative analysis of political punditry. And then how good were their predictions? It turns out they were terrible. Drunken monkeys would be better at predicting political outcomes than political insiders. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode, we'll talk with Peter Loge about the importance of ethics in modern democracy. Peter Loge, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'd love if you could give us a story or give us an example of political ethics, a current example of political ethics that we might have heard in the news. Right. So the uh, it's not just political ethics, but it's political communication ethics. Um, politics, democracy, is the result of how we talk about democracy. So how we talk about what we do matters a great deal. One of the headlines this week is the now former U.S. representative from California. Uh, she resigned uh, very recently because of a Scandals came out, inappropriate relationships, accusations of things, and subtle, but on her farewell speech, on her dropping the mic speech in the House of Representatives, she took ownership for what she'd done wrong, but she also said there's a double standard. She said that there are members of, of Congress who are, who are male, President of the United States, who have been credibly accused of all sorts of sexual malfeasance, of, of groping, of unwanted advances, of all sorts of things, all of whom are still in office. And yet she was chased out as a woman. And that double standard is one that she highlighted even as she took responsibility for her actions. The highlight, the accusations, didn't come out of nowhere. They were put out by conservatives. It was a, an effort on by conservative media and some conservative activists to, to put pictures of her out, to put uh, stories of, of the representative out. That's a political act. That's a piece of, of political maneuvering. That's political rhetoric. Was it okay? Do her voters have a right to know this? Should they care? And if so, should they care about the male, her male colleagues as well? Is there a double standard for women in politics? And if so, how do we get rid of that? Do we raise a bar for everybody? Do we lower it for everybody? What do we do about it? So it's not just what she was doing and what she was standing for, but it's how we were talking about what she was standing for and what we were doing. And that ultimately is the, is the heart and soul of a democracy. Right? A democracy produces policy. It is not policy itself. The point of our government is how we talk about what we're going to do next. There's no end of the conversation. Nobody wins democracy. And that's just one recent example of how, how the rhetoric of politics, I think, undermines the, the essence of the point of, the, of, of our democratic system. So I understand how policy is created and democratic ideals behind the policy creation. At the same time, she points out hypocrisy. Isn't hypocrisy part of how the game's played in Washington? <laughs> Hypocrisy's always been part of how the game is played. It's really easy to look at what's going on in politics right now and think that everything was fine and sunny and rosy until Twitter and Donald Trump, then the wheels came off, and oh my gosh, everything's awful. Lovely to think about. It's absolute nonsense. The argument that people have been behaving badly in politics and have been using good eloquence to bad ends go back thousands of years. Plato criticized the sophists and Protagoras for doing this. Protagoras in the dialogue, Protagoras, says he teaches the art of politics, which is to make men eloquent and speak on behalf of the state. Socrates says it can't be done because you can't know the nature of the good or the just. In 94, 
1994, but 94, <laughs> the Roman orator Quintilian railed against people who taught political communication, who taught what Emerson College does as undermining core values and bases. It's, it was an awful thing to do. George Orwell in 1946 in his essay, Politics and, English and the English Language, says that in our time it is largely true that political writing is bad writing. It's 1946. It's in defense of the indefensible. It gives the appearance of solidity to pure wind. Dave Chappelle, Washington, D.C.'s own Dave Chappelle, recent Mark Twain Prize winner, said on CNN that Donald Trump didn't make the wave. He's just riding it. It's telling that even in, in Federalist One, the first Federalist paper, Alexander Hamilton, before he was a song and dance man, he had a good career as a political theorist. In Federalist One, he railed against political parties. He railed against people who, who thought that because their side was righteous, that they could do anything they wanted. Right? He suggested that people tend to get wrapped up in what they believe to be true without thinking about whether or not they're good people for doing. This is Federalist One. In the Thomas Jefferson versus John Adams presidential campaign, Jefferson had somebody make stuff up about Adams and place it in local newspapers. Lots of scurrilous rumors, and including the fake news that if he were elected president, Adams would invade France. Adams, for his part, insulted Jefferson in some really brutal ways. Uh, the president of Yale, which is the Emerson College of Connecticut, said that if Jefferson were elected president, our wives and daughters would be subject to legal prostitution. So we've seen this movie before in politics. We've seen it for thousands of years. Now we're seeing it again in ways we haven't before. And just because we've seen it before doesn't mean we can't do better in the future. We need to pay attention to how we talk about politics to do better. There's a guy named Ed Brookover. He wrote a chapter for a book I've got coming out about ethics and political communication. He did the delegate selection process for Trump. He ran Ben Carson's presidential campaign. He's as conservative a political operative as you're going to get. Really good guy. He lays out what I just talked about with Jefferson and Adams and the rest. But he ends by saying, we must do better. You pointed out the political wave that Trump is riding. Would it be fair to say that technology has taken that wave, a mere wave, and turned it into tsunamis? Maybe, maybe. It's easy to say that Twitter and social media have elevated things. It's like it used to be, only much much more so. It's much louder. It's much easier to game. You see Russian interference in campaigns. You see Democratic operatives in Alabama copying Russian interference in, in a campaign and saying it's okay because, you know, the stakes are so high, you can justify it any way you want. And that is bad, and that's awful. There's a lot of disinformation. There's more deep fakes. It's easier to, to behave badly and behave badly in ways we haven't before. That said, the idea that we're going to quickly disseminate rumors or limericks or thing, things that sound clever that are sort of vacuous also isn't new. In his book, Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, which is about the ideological origins of the American Revolution, Bernard Balin quotes George Orwell. And Orwell writes about the pamphleteers of the time. Right? That's how we disseminated information. People printed stuff on the printing press, and they nailed it to trees, and they handed it out. And Orwell's description of pamphlets, as quoted by Balin, sounds a lot like Twitter or social media. It can be short, scurrilous, timely. Anybody can say it. It can be a song. It can be a chart. It can be a map. It can be anything you want. We've always done this. Social media makes it bigger, faster, louder, and potentially more dangerous. But it's fundamentally not new. It's interesting. It seems today, and perhaps it was yesteryear as well, we just don't realize that, that people are attracted to the spectacle, the fluff versus the substance. So with that, it would seem to be a dichotomous relationship in that on the one hand we have the fluff versus substance type of people, the, the spectacle, the here, the now, the, the sound bite, the, the real gotcha moment versus some real substance. 
How does that fall in line with, with ethics and politics? I mean, and what do we do about that today in light of the abolition of distance and time because of technology? You know, that's a really good question. How do you balance the, the substantive, careful thinking, measuring, and all of this with the flashy headline? And there's sort of an idea that the person who says that typically thinks they're thoughtful and substantive, and they keep Excel spreadsheets in their heads of all 286 registered Democrats or who are running for president, but that somehow it's all those other people who fall for the tricks. Theorists call that the third person effect, and we all fall for those tricks. We're all bears of little brains. We all always want to grasp the the new, the the flashy. Presidential campaigns have featured slogans like Tippecanoe and Tyler too. There used to be songs. There was one presidential campaign in which the candidate I think it was Coolidge, if I remember correctly, uh, had been accused of fathering a child out of wedlock. And his opponents chased him around shouting, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? When he's elected president, the supporters of the then uh, incoming president replied, off to the White House, ha, ha, ha. We've always done this. Uh, Aristophanes makes fun of this in, in, in Greece. But it is a question of, of sorting through it, of training us as, as consumers of information to be a bit more thoughtful, to question our own judgments and question our own assumptions. It's not just those other people who are falling for the tricks. People do this with negative ads. Negative ads don't work on me, but I'm really concerned about my neighbor. If you met my neighbor, he's kind of, I don't know, you should be very careful about my neighbor. But not me. Not me. I'm fine. We all do that. And so we all need to be better consumers of political information. The other argument I would make is that we often set up a dichotomy between the clever and the smart. It's the idea that we can either be substantive or we can be interesting. The best rhetoric is substantive and interesting, right? Aristotle writes about this in the rhetoric. Uh, if you only read one book on persuasion, just, just read Aristotle's rhetoric. It's out of copyright, so it's downloadable for free. It's a bit clunky. It was actually put together as lecture notes by his former students. He didn't actually write it. His other people did after, after he died. But in it, Aristotle talks about the need to be substantive and ethical because ethical persuasion is inherently more persuasive, according to Aristotle. But he also said you have to figure out what it is your audience already believes and remind them of that. You use turns of phrase, phrases that people assume to be true. People like to hear in the specific what they believe to be generally true. You need to make people a little bit afraid that things, bad things can happen to them. This could happen to you. That's an Aristotelian idea. Right? So I think the best political communication, the most ethical political communication, finds things that are accurate, that are thoughtful, that are meaningful, and that are also compelling and interesting and clever. It sounds as if we have to rely on those creating the political communication to be ethical and thoughtful and not the actual consumer. I think it needs to be both. As consumers, we need to be better consumers. We need to be informed consumers. But yeah, if you're talking about politics, you should do it right. How do we take middle America or... I don't want to use the term unwashed masses, something that Lenin or perhaps a member of the bourgeoisie class would say. How do we afford this opportunity to those who are not super well educated that aren't in a position where they'll come to this naturally? I think that that's, that's an interesting question. And it's again, it's an it's a idea that we are the clever and it's those other people who aren't as clever who, is the, who are the problem. And it turns out people behave as if there are people, regardless of whether they're clever or not. There's some really terrific research done by Phil Tetlock, who's a psychologist at, I want to say, University of Southern California. And at one point, he, he did a quantitative analysis of political punditry, looked at the Sunday morning shows and who's predicting what, and all these inside experts sitting around talking to each other. And then how good were their predictions? It turns out they were terrible. 
drunken monkeys would be better at predicting political outcomes than political insiders because we talk to each other and we believe our own stories and we have our own narratives. I've been doing politics for more than two decades. I think I know how it goes. And now in my mid-50s, I'm certainly not going to turn around and say, you know, everything I did when I was a chief of staff in the House of Representatives, turns out that was nonsense. Now I really, that's just not going to happen, right? So it's all of us need to do this. The other is most people don't talk about politics. Most people don't think about politics. They want politicians to think about politics because they're busy thinking about being teachers or cops or farmers or truck drivers or, or scientists, or whatever it is they do. It's those of us who talk about politics for a living have that responsibility to think about the ethics of it. If you study journalism anywhere in America, here at Emerson College, at George Washington University, where I teach or anywhere else, you have to take a course in ethics. If you study public relations, you often have to take a course in ethics. Business, law, medicine, increasingly data and data technology have to take courses in ethics. There are virtually no courses in political communication ethics taught in America. There are almost no books about political communication ethics. There are two that are published right now, both edited by a guy named Professor Robert Denton at Virginia Tech. One came out in 1995, the other I think in the year 2000. There'll be one coming out in early 2020 if all goes to plan. I'd knock on wood, but it'd make the mic sound bad. But if all goes to plan, there'll be a third. That's it, right? There are no journals, there are no conferences, there are no meetings. All of us who teach at, and Emerson does a better job than most places because you've got Professor Cooper, you've got students committed to it, you've got President Lee Pelton fully committed to this. I think the School of Media and Public Affairs where I teach does a good job because that's where I teach and I like to think I do a good job. But that's, it's, it should be constant, it should be an assumption. I like that, but what scares me is what happens now when we look at the fact that political ethics is not taught commonly, when we add that to technology, now, in the marketing world, there's marketing automation, where I can essentially take a variety of parameters, correlate that to a persona and their characteristics, essentially hit a button and let it go. And it will actually, now that we can add artificial intelligence, it will actually format the messaging for a specific persona. It's machine learning, and then it's applied to a target market. This is now entering into the political world, where political ethics would not be part of that. So what's a person to do as we automate political communication, couple that with the fact that political ethics has not been the mainstream focus in terms of formatting the communication piece? Well, you make it part of the focus. You insert it now. Can we mandate that? Can, will we have to have the public calling for that? I mean, I guess the big question here is if we let, just let it be to evolve on its own, Will this lead to the demise of democracy or will it somehow eventually will evolve and will strengthen our democracy? Who knows what will end up happening to it. As one of these political insiders, I know enough that I, I shouldn't be predicting because my prediction will be wrong. The fact that I'm usually wrong just proves how smart I am, I think, is how that goes. The question you raised is a really critical one, though. What are the ethics of AI? And if you look at, at a lot of AI and a lot of algorithms, well, you know, it doesn't have the human touch. It can't be racist. It can't be sexist. It can't be biased. It's just the machine. The problem is people are feeding the machine initially. And the early research I've seen indicates that the biases, the unconscious biases of the programmers get fed into this little beast, get put into the black box, and then they get built on and, and built on exponentially. So you actually end up echoing your own uh, hidden or subconscious biases. And people are in fact responding to that. Again, at GW, we are launching, colleagues of mine have launched IDDP, the Institute for Democracy, Data, and Politics, 
to look at exactly this this question of how do we deal with AI? What about deep fakes? How are how is emerging technology impacting politics? And they're not just looking at the data piece. I'm in those conversations. I don't understand the data piece. I'm a political guy who cares about ethics, who's got a thing for Aristotle and Protagoras. But they're asking me, hey, we need a normative take on this. It can't just all be, all be the data folks. And the folks working on this project have PhDs in political science and PhDs in communication. They're not just the scientists. They're being funded by the Knight Foundation, which has put $50, million out to various universities to study things like journalism ethics, communication ethics, technology, and politics, to hopefully get out in front of it. You can't tell people to not talk about politics. That undermines the First Amendment. That would be the most counterproductive thing one could do. Just as you can't teach people, mandate people be good reporters, because I don't know what good is, right? Good tends to be defined by the people in power, and part of the point is to make the people in power fussy. Yet we teach journalism ethics. We have journalism ethics books and conferences because we hope that if we tell students, don't just write a compelling story, but write a story that's true or has a kernel of truth or that reveals something about us that, that we might not otherwise see as human beings. We should be doing the same in politics. We both teach at universities. I like to think that all of my students consume everything I say, hang on every word, do all of the readings. That's a lie. I hope that they get a couple of good ideas and at some point five years from now, they run across a situation and say, hey, I remember Loge said something about that. That's all I can ask in politics. Make it part of the conversation, then hopefully things will get better. Because if it's not part of the conversation, things are only going to get worse. So with that, normal conversations, the man on the street, if you ask them about ethics and politics, I think the first response will be a laugh. Is it worse now than it's ever been? I mean, you pointed out, you know, back in 94, the original 94, <laughs> that, that these, el- these same elements had existed. But today, there seems to be this, this huge you know, rift between the left and the right. Fortunately, we only have two parties here, unlike other countries with many. But is it getting worse? Is it getting better? The answer is probably yes. I think if we had more parties, weirdly, it would be less divisive because you, you have to form coalitions to rule. Spain is a bit of a hot mess at the moment, but one of the reasons it's been relatively stable is because the Basque, the the, um, ruling party in the Basque country, the PNV, has been able to successfully broker relationships between Catalan separatists and Madrid. And so you've kind of got moderating forces, right? If I need three things to get enough votes to win, I've got to find a way for these three things to work together. The two-party piece may actually make things worse than multiple parties, but we have we, we have the system we have. We have a republic. We don't have a democracy. We don't have a parliament. So two parties are inevitable. Again, Hamilton railed against that. In some ways, our political discourse is is better than it has been. Uh, there are no headlines saying that that if somebody were elected president, uh, prostitution would run wild, as they did in the 1700s. The Civil War strikes me as being worse than now because that was actually a, a real people shooting at each other war. When I was a kid in New Haven, Connecticut, we had tanks on the streets in 1968. So things have been really, really bad in the past. That said, there are reasons to believe that there are now structural elements that make it worse than ever or harder to get out of than ever. We're now more tribal than we have been. It's not just the partisan divide, but it's my tribe versus your tribe. There's less intra-party dispute. Democrats tend to be fully pure on the Democratic side. There's, there are fewer arguments. You're seeing some in the primaries, but not so many. Uh, there used to be more debates within the Republican side. At this point, um, the Republican Party is a fully owned subsidy of, of Donald Trump, and there's no room for disagreement. It's, it's clamped down. It, it's frowned upon. 
So that makes it harder. The money follows the echoes. People in my industry and politics often mistake Twitter for the real world and Twitter chasing its own ends into this awful abyss of miasma, which is overwrought, but anybody who spent time on political Twitter would, will recognize that. You've also got congressional districts that are drawn to, to be as partisan as possible, which punishes cooperation and rewards extremism. You've got a lot of structural elements involved. There's an interesting good book came out earlier this year by Tomaski called If We Can Keep It, which is Ben Franklin's line to a reporter coming out of the Constitutional Convention. The question posed to Franklin was, would we have a democracy or a republic? Franklin replies, a republic if we can keep it. So Tomaski writes about this. He writes about the history of political vitriol in this country and why it's been worse, but also why we have special, there are special concerns about our current moment because of the structures that structure the debates in politics. It is up to all of us, though, who work in politics, who consume politics, who talk about politics, who teach politics, to say, please have a different view, right? You have to have a different view than I do, otherwise we don't have a democracy. But as you talk about that view, you have to do it in ways that strengthen the system that allows us to have that debate, right? Sports are a a rough analogy for politics. There's lots of problems with it. That said, it does work in this case. I'm a soccer guy. I'm back on campus at Emerson for the soccer team. Soccer is pretty, it can be a pretty brutal sport. I'll knock you on your ass if you're coming at me. I'm a defender, but I'm going to do it legally. I'm not going to go after your, I'm not going to go after your Achilles. There are rules within the game. You have to respect the game itself, even as you level your opponent, right? You shake hands with your opponent. You, you respect their skill. Again, you'll deck them. If the ref isn't looking, maybe you're grabbing their jersey. Maybe you're bumping them out of the way, but the game itself matters. I would suggest that people who engage in politics, who talk about politics, work in campaigns, need to do the same. Because if the rules of the game are ignored or if they go away, then the game itself vanishes. Our democracy, our political conversation, only makes sense in the context of the structure that allows that conversation. It is the conversation. So you have to pay attention to that conversation. I think we have an obligation to. One of the things that's sort of scary at the same time is when we look out at Major League Soccer out yeah. in Seattle versus Portland, if I understand the scenario correctly, Major League Soccer was annoyed by some of the fans who were showing an anti-fascist, pre-Nazi Germany banner, and it was, it was outlawed. At the same time, they came back and said, well, wait a minute, what about the people wearing the Make American Great hats again? Isn't that political commentary? Yeah, the, the league handled that badly, um, and they've now come to rapprochement, and they've solved it. Um, soccer is a, is a more political sport than a lot of other sports around the world, in part because of its history and in part because of where it's played, and, and it becomes a proxy for religious conflict or separatist conflict. But on the field, if you look on the field, the players themselves, some, are, some dive. There's always a Neymar, and there's always some thug. A, a flop here and there. Right, exactly. Yeah. Just, you know, whatever. That's really frowned on. And the best players and most respected players, again, will, they'll bump you and they'll kick you and they'll get in your head. But they won't go after your Achilles. Or if they see a player, it's interesting. Um, I've talked to a guy named Bobby Warshaw, who played pro ball, and he's now a commentator for Major League Soccer. And he and I were talking about this. He's a big political guy. His dad's a political scientist. His brother's a political scientist. So apparently at home, all they watch when they get together as a family is C-SPAN and soccer because they're a politics and soccer family. One son went and played pro soccer. The other one became a political scientist. 
And he said that, and we were talking about this, and he said on a field, you can tell if a player's really hurt or if they're just a little bit hurt and they're going to get up and be fine or if they're diving. You can just tell. And if somebody's really hurt, you stop, right? The ref, you don't have to, and the ref can blow the whistle or whatever, but you know because that matters more, right? The, you, you don't cheat because it's wrong, because at some point someone's going to come after you, because it's the game. For 90 minutes, you, you don't care about anything other than winning that moment. But you don't do it in a way that undermines the game itself, even apart from what's going on in the stands. The politics of soccer and the global politics of FC Barcelona and the Catalan Separatist movement and the Athletic Bilbao, which only signs basketball players, and the Celtic uh, Rangers rivalry versus Catholics versus Protestants. Whole separate conversation. Terrific podcast I'd love to listen to. For the purposes of the metaphor, it's in the game itself. The players themselves fight hard. They are partisan, right? They want to win. They bang into each other but they do it in a way that doesn't undermine the sport. Nobody brings a shiv and stuffs it in their socks. We as political communicators have that same responsibility. Don't cheat, don't stuff a shiv in your socks. Don't lie that your opponent wants to invade France, right? Have a respect for the forum in which you are debating. Be partisan, be more civil, please stop shouting. We, you can't govern in all caps, but sometimes incivility is called for. When it's called for, be incivil. Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail is a terrific example of this. Be more respectful, please. But some people have not earned your respect, so do not show them that respect. But if you're only disrespectful, if you're only loud, you got nowhere to go when the really bad guy comes along. So be more civil, be more respectful. Regardless of how you're doing it, when you're, even if you're incivil or if you're being disrespectful, we do it in a way that values and strengthens the premise of our democracy. Again, I look at Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. He writes to the white leaders of Birmingham that they are striking, they are protesting because they had a deal with the leaders of Birmingham who then ignored the deal. And Dr. King said, we didn't want to protest, but you forced us into this position. And his arguments for that are based on the Old Testament and, found, and the founding American documents. He roots his argument in a fundamentally American set of values. It is a fundamentally ethical argument. This is the same argument he makes in the Eye of a Dream speech. It's a promissory note. America is a promissory note. And we have to fulfill that promissory note. We have to fulfill the promise of America. And the problem of the white leadership in Birmingham, the problem of Congress in the 1960s, was they were failing to live up to the American promise. It didn't make a lot of people happy. You're shutting down the streets. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? This is really mean. Why can't they just calm down? So it's arguably incivil, but it's fundamentally ethical. Where do we go from here? I'm going to give a talk at UMass Boston. Where are you going? <laughs> Where do we go from here? That's a terrific question. Um, I think that there are a couple of things we can do. Everybody who talks about politics, I think, should take a breath and say, what is it I'm standing for? Why, why am I engaged in politics? What do I believe in? Now, how do I make my positions reflect that? Um, I can't tell you what, to, what your ethical foundation should be. If I taught at Boston College or Georgetown, it would be easy. We'd debate all semester, and in the end, the Jesuits would win. I don't. I went to Emerson College. I teach at George Washington University. You've got to find your ethical bearing. And maybe it's the Gospel of Paul. Maybe it's the Quran. Maybe it's your mom. There's something, there's something that, that, that grounds you. Find that. Hang on to that. The second thing we need to do is don't just pop off politically. Don't just say what comes to mind. Take a breath. Is this the best way to say it? Can I say this another way? Can I be as partisan but maybe a little less snarky? Demand the same of others when you're hearing political speeches. If somebody goes off on Twitter or Facebook or, or if you hear a speech and, and the person doing the speaking, you agree with them, but they are engaging in, in 
in rhetoric that is undermining of our democracy that attacks the press. The press is the enemy of the people. Stand up for that. Say, no, no, it's not. Brett Stevens might make you angry. That does not make the, the entirety of the New York Times an awful un-American institution. It makes Brett Stevens kind of a second-rate hack sometimes. But that's fine. He's a columnist. That's part of his job, right? I think he should that you need to do that as consumers. And for those of us who, who pursue politics as a living, who, who write about politics, I don't tend to advise candidate campaigns so much anymore. I work mostly with issue campaigns. We need to make sure that we are upholding those values ourselves. We should fight hard for those things in which we believe. We should fight hard for a world that we think is more just and the best way to get us there. But we need to do it in a way that's both clever and smart, that's partisan and ethical. And that's hard, but that's why they pay you. We spoke with Peter Loge. Peter is an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. He has more than 25 years of experience in politics, including serving in senior staff positions in the U.S. House, Senate, and Obama administration. He's been a lobbyist and communications consultant, has led, helped lead, and advised numerous public and private sector organizations. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. We had studio help from associate producers, Sam DeCoste and Lucas Poyser. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.